talk about how do people play games in Latin America. Um, in Latin America, just like in other places, there's also games being developed for learning purposes and play as a process of discovery, a process of acquisition, a process of having new experiences and learning new things. It's something that we're trying to take advantage everywhere. James G is the major spokesperson for this within Games and Education, referenced in several of the talks today. But there are people all over the world taking his recommendations. So these are two wonderful games for school children by the Uruguayan game developing company Trojan Chicken. The first one is DED, Departamento Especial de Detectives, and the second one is 1811. Um, DED, or DED, is a detective game that teaches Uruguayan geography and history, national patrimony. Uh, 1811 is a role playing game that teaches Uruguay's colonial and independence era history. And I have just at least a brief introduction of DED, if it doesn't kill my computer to play it here. Vamos a ver. It's acting a little funny here. I just want to touch that play button right there. No, let's go into the next one. So I don't want this pen. What's with the pen? Hmm. No? No? So, okay, here we go. This seems to work. There we go. It's in Spanish. Sorry if you don't speak Spanish. You have some math problems that you have to do, planting a garden and things. It's an elementary school game, sponsored by the Uruguayan government for, as an educational initiative. interesting. There's certain uh, artifacts that you have to find or the, it's all very map oriented, uh, geographically oriented to teaching you the different states of Uruguay and things such as this. So this is an example of a game that's very much didactic, uh, pedagogical. It's made by a government initiative to create an educational game. But I'm also very interested in looking at, again, um, the kind of unexpected meaning that can be taken out of games. So I'm interested in looking at the way you can take a very commercial game such as Red Dead Redemption, which is made by Rockstar Games, the makers of Grand Theft Auto. Um, this game is a few years old, maybe four years old. Um, it's another open world game like Grand Theft Auto, but at the same time has a narrative that you can kind of come in and out of as you go through the game. It is an Old West game, but a uh, latter-day Old West set in the 1910s on the U.S.-Mexico border in a fictitious U.S.-Mexico border, but at the same time one that has all of the kind of cultural in intricacies as well as the geography of the actual U.S.-Mexican border. This is where you, your protagonist character, John Marston, is accompanying a character uh, who's a Mexican revolutionary, 
Marston, your character becomes embroiled in the Mexican Revolution, first on the side of the Federales, and then eventually on the side of the peasant revolutionaries. And the Mexican Revolution becomes a very significant backdrop to this game. So there is some kind of historical significance that can be gleaned by it, even while it doesn't use actual historical figures, but is more of a, a satire or a parody of the whole situation it's portraying. Um, it does speak to the factionalism of uh, the Mexican Revolution, the revolutionary forces, and a lot of other little historical tidbits that you can grab, such as this little one that's just kind of while you're trotting along on horseback in between different parts of a mission. So if you follow the dialogue here, I mean, there, this character within the game, this Mexican revolutionary character, really is teaching you some knowledge of significance about, for example, the fact that a corrida is a bullfight while a corrido is a song genre, and that that genre of song is about a kind of folk hero, and that it's a way of telling their great deeds and, um, and the, the great events of their lives, and that in a country with a, a major um, illiterate population, as was Mexico at the turn of the 20th century, um, the corridos served a cultural purpose of kind of educating the masses in an alternative manner. And it's just interesting to me that you know any player of this game can grab that as they're going along without noticing that they're really picking up any cultural knowledge, and that even a very commercial game that wasn't made with any didactic or pedagogical intentions can at the same time convey culturally meaningful experiences to players, especially players who may have very little familiarity with the kind of context that they're playing with. Um, so again, I'm just going to kind of speed through a couple of examples. I know I don't have a ton of time, but um, in terms of persuasion, I'm interested in two things. Generally, when we talk about persuasive games within game studies, like I said, this is an actual term for types of games that are ideologically challenging, types of games that are activist games. Um, and I'm interested in that to begin with. And so a couple of these persuasive games that have come out of Latin America, again out of Uruguay, um, these are two games that are created by a Uruguayan game designer and theorist named Gonzalo Frasca. Um, he's an absolutely essential um, ludologist, game studies theorist. He's the one who coined the term ludology for game studies, um, and he's a significant uh, theorist in the kind of um, early years of game studies in particular, and since then has dedicated himself almost entirely to game design. Doesn't do a lot of academic writing anymore, but does some very interesting game design. He works, uh, this should say news gaming, this is my typo, news gaming is uh, something that he made, and it's something that is a, a series of games to respond to specific kind of events in the news. Um, in an unconventional way and in an ideologically challenging way. This is a game called Madrid um, that he made after the 2004 March 11th bombings in Madrid, um, the coordinated Al-Qaeda train bombings 
um, that killed hundreds of people in Madrid in 2004. This is a game that Gonzalo Frasca designed within 24 hours of those bombings and put online as a kind of uh, response to that event. So you can see this is the instructions. As click en las velas para que las llamas brillen lo más fuerte posible. Click on the candles so that they burn as brightly as possible. Once again. And this is me actually playing the game. And so you can see there's actually a little light meter down here. And the more of them you keep lit at the same time, the higher the light meter gets. And the goal is to fill that light meter um, by keeping the candles ever lit and burning simultaneously. And this, of course, also has a kind of emotional slash socio-political message of keeping the candles burning in memory of the victims of these um, acts of terror and keeping in our memories the need to prevent uh, further acts of violence. But if you cease to do it because you just can't get to finish and can't get to win because it's extremely difficult, as I understand it, you can only play this game with a mouse to actually win it. You get this message when it's over. Debes seguir intentándolo. You have to keep trying. It's a beautiful little microcosm of a game that has a beautiful political message, um, in some ways not unlike this game about South Korea and loneliness, and, but it just in a very simple game dynamic um, expresses something in a way that cannot be expressed in, in such a simple way linguistically. This is another game invented by Gonzalo Frasca. Again, it's called September 12th. Um, it's called September 12th, A Toy World, and this is, in a sense, a response not directly to September 11th, but to the War on Terror. Um, it's a very interesting, very, very interesting game that actually uh, quite a few academics have written about, this game in particular. This is not a game you can't win and you can't lose. This is a simulation. It has no ending. It's already begun. The rules are deadly simple. You can shoot or not. This is a simple model you can use to explore some aspects of the War on Terror. And you see some of these people are terrorists with a gun, others are civilians. So civilians, terrorist. Terrorist, terrorist, but uh, among civilians, right? Kind of hard to sort out a little bit. Get a little more juice while this plays out for a second. If you can see what happens, whenever you shoot a missile, of course, it's very imprecise, and you end up killing terrorists as well as bystanders. bystanders. Um, then people come around to mourn their deaths. If you watch here, see these women crying. And then those women turn into more terrorists. So 
the more you use violence in this game, the more you multiply the terrorist population and the more uh, terrorists you have to look out for. And so it's very much a commentary about the war on terror and about um, the results of using things like drone missile strikes that may uh, strike a target and kill many more civilians and may also ultimately have longer term repercussions than the uh, directors of the war on terror might want to recognize. There are other great games from this tradition of kind of simplistic dynamics made into strong political commentaries. Another great game designer is a guy called Rafael Fajardo, who's actually a professor out in Colorado, um, and created a couple great games on uh, the subject of illegal immigration from Mexico. Um, this game, La Migra, and this game, Crosser. And you can see their gameplay here. They're also exceedingly difficult games, despite their simplistic look. Mm. And if you are an old Atari player or arcade player like me, you'll eventually recognize that Crosser is designed after the video game Frogger. It's basically another version of Frogger, where rather than Frogger, you're Carlos Moreno, this kind of uh, Mexican Charlie Brown, who is supposed to cross over the river and dodge these different obstacles from pollution to cats in the river to the corpse of a gang member here. And then they have to dodge the, the migra agents and then further dangers on the other side. Um, La migra is from the opposite perspective. It's a space invaders based game where rather than the space invaders uh, cursor, you're playing the migra vehicle, the um, immigration and naturalization vehicle. And you've got immigrants coming across the border that you've got to throw handcuffs at from your police cruiser. So both of these games are very much made to problematize the subject of illegal immigration from Mexico and from an activist standpoint, fundamentally. Um, on the other hand, the persuasive games uh, of another kind that get a lot more attention in Latin America as well as the United States are those that serve a kind of political purpose beyond the game itself. And that is to say, fundamentally, the controversial blockbuster games. So just like Grand Theft Auto, serves political purposes for American politicians and politicians abroad, um, oftentimes games set in Latin America can provoke kind of uh, political um, firestorms whether or not they, they are expected. And in some cases you have to figure they must be expected, such as in the case of Call of Juarez, the cartel, which is a kind of um, Western vigilante game but set in the present day. This game is just a couple years old as well, in which a set of U.S. vigilantes take on the drug cartels of northern Mexico. And it's a very kind of trivializing um, version of the drug war. Certainly not the most uh, intelligent thing you could do with a video game on the drug war, but it was quickly picked up by Mexican senators who called for it to be banned outright from distribution in the country, um, despite the fact that ultimately it was not really a particularly successful or impactful game. It kind of allows for uh, a little bit of saber rattling and a, a pointing of the finger somewhere else. Just like the NRA um, blaming video games after school shootings, this allows politicians who may have very serious problems about the drug war in Mexico to say, well, this is an easy one. This silly video game, you know, we should, not, we should get behind banding this. And so it's a kind of, um, you know, an easy political maneuver that's used again and again. 
Call of Duty Black Ops, the first mission of this game is to assassinate Fidel Castro. It created a big uproar in Cuba. Mercenaries 2 World in Flames, another game that was not particularly successful but became the most kind of uh, productive game in terms of the political controversy it stirred up in Latin America, particularly because Hugo Chavez, the now defunct president of Venezuela, saw it as a fictionalization of an American coup attempt against his own government in Venezuela. This is a game that is set in Venezuela. That's kind of, uh, it's a third person shooter game. It's like Grand Theft Auto. You're certainly going around wreaking havoc all over Venezuela. And on the surface, there are some similarities that might cause you to find comparisons with Hugo Chavez. There's a socialist leader in the Venezuela of this scenario who wants to nationalize Venezuela's petroleum, uh, much to the chagrin of the U.S. Uh, oil interests in the country, as well as the U.S. government. And so all of these factions are kind of involved, but the vigilantes ultimately work for them all in the game, and the game doesn't take the side of any particular country. Um, nor is it a game about Hugo Chavez, but that didn't stop Hugo Chavez from saying this about this exact game. This is from his Alo Presidente program. So there are very good reasons, you know, to complain about certain video games. There's very good reasons to make a call for uh, cultural independence nationally and for the right to make one's own games and not be dominated completely by the games put out by the United States. But what is interesting to me is the distortion necessary to get to the point of making this game politically uh, purposeful, of making this into useful political currency, which is to say you've got to distort and exaggerate and say, oh, they even made one with my own face once. They absolutely did not make a game with his face in it. Um, you had to hunt down and kill Chavez, hunt down Chavez. You absolutely did not have to do this. And this is definitely the game that he's talking about, that, that, uh, that I'm talking about here, Mercenaries 2. So it's the distortions that lead you to wonder what's the ultimate motivation behind this kind of political saber rattling. And I would suggest the ultimate uh, purpose behind it is to put forward legislation that allows politicians the freedom to censor creative production, such as video games, with uh, impunity. And this is a, an example of this. The law for the prohibition of bellicose video games and bellicose toys, which was passed in Venezuela within a year after that television broadcast, um, that says that all video games must promote respect for life, creativity, healthy entertainment, partnership, loyalty, teamwork, respect for the law, learning, tolerance, understanding among people, and the spirit of peace and brotherhood. And I, again, these are all great values, but it's a question of putting it into a law that says every video game must include all of these things because clearly there is no video game. Tetris does not complete these purposes. There's no video game, no matter how devoid of ideology it may seem or how um, enlivened with ideology it is to make it an ideologically purposeful production, there's none that will fulfill these 
um, requirements when, when you really get down to the nitty gritty. So it's just therefore a law that involves or that allows any politician to censor any video game based on their own whims and as we can see based on distortions that have nothing to do with the reality of the games. And then leads to a great public spectacle where you can literally go out and steamroll these video games and toy guns and things as a kind of sign of power against um, the empire, but that again, I think is very, um, is, 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 is a tricky way of going about using video games for persuasive purposes. Um, I'll just round up with a few more, a couple more minutes of examples and talking about potential. Um, the international video game marketers have definitely seen potential in the Latin American video game market for a very long time. This is um, a, a Venezuelan ad for the Atari from the late 70s, early 80s. Very interesting ad campaign Atari had in Brazil, also in the 80s. The public enemy number one of the Brazilian family is posing the Atari as like a competitor for you to challenge with your family, someone you're fighting against, kind of posing the video game as the enemy, but in a tongue-in-cheek way. It's, of course, promoting the video game. This dynamic is fundamentally changed today. This is a sign of American video game companies um, producing hardware in China and selling that uh, at a premium within Latin America to those who can afford it. This is the reality today, is an Xbox assembly line in Brazil where Xboxes and Playstations and Xbox Ones and Playstation 4s uh, as well as iPhones are being produced internally in Brazil for consumption within Latin America, within the region, not just as a kind of maquiladora where they're producing them to then send them back to the United States or send them to Europe, but rather they're being produced for the domestic markets of Latin America within Latin America. And again, it's a fundamental change in the kind of dynamics that we see. Um, the Latin American game market, um, you can get some basic statistics on it here. There's interesting things like localization to take into consideration. Games like Pro Evolution Soccer, which is by far the number one game in Latin America. This is a top 20 game in the United States. It's an okay game. It does okay with sales, but this is also another kind of uh, piece of evidence of the kind of different puzzle that we're dealing with in Latin America to talk about the relationship between culture and games. Um, a game like that in Latin America is custom, uh, customized to include well-known Mexican and Brazilian commentators players, teams, trophy races, um, sold a million copies in five days within Latin America, which is a huge statistic for the regional market, where again, they're facing you know, much more expensive games to begin with. Um, people tend to play a generation behind a lot more frequently, or things are being sold to places like those locutorios. Um, and I talked about changes in the domestic manufacturing, but there's also changes just in the last five years with the spread of um, of cellular data networks and the spread of smartphones that are multiplying internet access in Latin America far beyond the levels that have ever existed, far beyond the levels that have ever existed for telephone penetration in Latin America. We're getting much, much higher levels of internet penetration than we did of telephone penetration 30 years ago in Latin America. So estimates say 80 percent of the enormous and enormously rural and grant in large part, although also enormously urban, population of Brazil will have internet access by 2016. 80% of the population of Brazil will have internet access by 2016. And at the same time, there's a boom in these kind of small casual game producers. A change in the market with the advent of casual games, where instead of working 
300, 500 people for two to three years to make a game like Call of Duty or Grand Theft Auto, you've got one person or four people or 12 people working for a year to put out an app on the App Store or to put out a game, an indie game on Steam or on the PlayStation Network. And that kind of small market opening up is something that really transforms the dynamics of Latin American game production too. Um, the biggest game economies in Latin America, Mexico, Brazil, and Argentina, you can get a sense of the market distribution really heavy on Mexico and Brazil, um, as well as Northern South America. And US publications, mainstream publications like the New York Times and Newsweek really start to um, take note of these things too. And talking about indie games, you also see Latin American designers working outside of Latin America with independent game companies, but producing very Latin American products in some case, like this wonderful game, Guacamele, which I was playing with my six-year-old daughter earlier today. It's one of her favorites. This whole game is the vision of a Mexican game animator who works at this game studio in Montreal um, and who basically came up with this entire vision for this game which is based on um, the iconography of the Mexican Day of the Dead as well as the iconography of Mexican pro wrestling. As you can see you have this main character um, Juan who is a pro wrestler, who's a luchador um, and who is kind of trying to rescue the princess, basically, from the world of the dead. And it gets into this kind of crazy dimension-switching scenario where you can switch back and forth between the world of the living and the world of the dead. You can also switch between being a chicken and being a human. It's a very interesting way that this fundamentally two-dimensional game works out the problem of dimensionality. Um, and really brings a kind of cultural dimension to the game that is often overlooked. So Guacamele is one of many games that I see as kind of changing um, the face of Latin American game production because of independent producers. Kingdom Rush is an app game as well that's a real uh, financial success story again out of Uruguay. Lucha Libre AAA Héroes del Ring is the first multi-console game designed entirely in Latin America. It was designed between Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil and released in 2010. Um, beyond that, I'll just have to leave with a, a hint of what I get into when I talk about semiotics, when I talk about the cultural symbols and signs that are picked up from the real world, uh, such as the Aztec calendar stone, placed into an interactive world in which they're recontextualized and in which their meaning is fundamentally transformed. And you see the Aztec calendar in this puzzle game as well, Jewel Quest, or as the backdrop to Hamilton and Hamilton's Great Adventure. Um, or likewise, the Cristo Rey in uh, Rio is used in many games to signify different things. For one thing, to signify Rio. But, for example, in Tropico 3, this is a game like a civilization type game where you're the 
uh, dictator of your own uh, tropical island in Latin America. It's very much a parody of the Cuban Revolution and the post-revolutionary state, but in the form of a civilization type game. And in this game, you can buy your own Christ the Redeemer statue and put it on your own island. And it actually has the effect of having like a 20% increase in tourist interest in your island and a 10% increase in your inhabitants' environmental happiness. And these are things that, you know, have calculable results on then the chances of there being a revolt or the chances of your economy holding up because it's based on tourism. And therefore, you know, you can get the sense of the way a sign is more than just a sign. It's something that is engaged meaningfully in a game. There's another game theorist, um, Espen Arseth, who's another one of the fathers of ludology, who says the great thing um, in, well, he, he's talking about the way that um, literary types like ourselves tend to approach a video game as a, as a text. And he says the great thing is when I throw you a football, you generally don't drop it to the ground and wait for it to start telling you a story. You realize that is something that is engaged in a purposeful activity beyond storytelling, which is a, a football within a game is not a sack of pigskin, it's a means of scoring points. And likewise, the Christ the Redeemer statue within a game is not just a symbol of Brazil or a symbol of Rio or a symbol of Catholicism or a symbol of redemption, but is also a 20% increase in environmental happiness, a 10% increase in tourist interest. And so these are things that take on different meanings depending on how they're employed in different games. Um, we could talk about different types of space, too, and the ways that that isometric perspective, this kind of global god game view, allows and kind of promotes a more conquest-oriented type of gameplay, um, but allows for a kind of bigger picture, microcosmic view of things. You don't have personal interactions in the way that you do in a game like Tomb Raider that I think is a fundamentally a story about Lara Croft and the environment. There are very, very few other people or characters in any Tomb Raider game. If anything, Lara might come and interact with some ghost jaguars or some scorpions or something, but very few people. Her own team is always just kind of in the background, um, in the cutscenes. They don't actually interact in the game. This game is all about environment. It's all about recursive space. Recursive space is a game studies term for space that opens up as you interact with it. So you might start with a totally blacked out map and as you find new spaces, they appear on that map and you open up that space in a kind of interactive process with the game. So that's kind of one type of space that is really oriented toward discovery and exploration and things that are highlighted by a game like Tomb Raider, whereas kind of micromanagement skills and big picture looks at um, societal networks and the way they interact with each other is something that's really permitted and enabled and promoted by the use of isometric perspective in games like Tropico. Um, and then there's the whole open world perspective, again, which games like Red Dead Redemption open the player up into an entire set of non-narrative experiences which can have profoundly different types of results. Um, I won't go too much further into uh, what I think about parody and how it works in games and how it takes these games beyond our kind of superficial readings of them as narratives at time. Um, but it is a little suggestion of what else I'm looking at in my overall project. Again, the ways that culture uses games um, for different purposes for people and then the way that games use culture. And it's just to speak to the fact that there are a lot of different points of entry into looking at the relationship between video games and culture and into looking at how do we use video games in the humanities, how do we study video games in the humanities, and a lot of these doors are just opening up, but I think that the most 
Um, the, the best takeaways I could possibly give would be, one, to take a, a positive perspective in some way, um, that there are enough people bulldozing video games out there in the world that you don't need to do it as academics. There's plenty of that going on already, and what you need to do is find what is meaningful about these games, not why they're easily rejectable or not interesting, but rather what is interesting about them. Um, and I would also, just to say that we're all finding our own paths, but there are really theoretically rigorous uh, bases and groundwork already laid out for us if we know how to use them in the right way. So I'm really glad to see you all doing that here already, and I, I appreciate the invite to come and speak to you today. All right, thank you.